Coming up on today's show, Alberta's Minister of Advanced Education will join us to talk about exceptional tuition hikes. He approved at the University of Alberta and the University of Calgary. With what's going on in Ukraine, are we losing sight of what's happening in North Korea? And with all that's happening around Russia, there's a big spat going regarding space. All right, well, tuition in Alberta is capped. Kind of. Sort of. Fees can't be increased more than 7% except when they are. You see, schools can apply to the Provincial Minister of Advanced Education for what are called exceptional hikes. And if he approves those hikes, they can be a lot higher than 7%. Both the U of A and U of C seeing uh, increases well above 7%. So next year, in some cases, students will see increases of more than 70%, double in some cases. Uh, Tuition for a master's degree in counseling at the University of Alberta has doubled for 2022, fall of 2022. So let's find out why. How did this happen? Let's check in with our Minister of Advanced Education, Dimitrios Nikolaides. Uh, Minister, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Happy to be here. Some of these hikes are enormous. I mean, there's there's no getting around it. Doubling, in some cases, 100%. So they all had to be approved by you. So why did you see these increases as being reasonable? Yeah, well, the, and you're absolutely correct. There are some uh, situations in which some of the increases are uh, are, are significant. There's, uh, but there's a couple of reasons uh, why these increases have gone ahead. So first and foremost, um, all students who are currently in these programs are grandfathered at um, older rates. So this only applies to new students coming into the program. Secondly, the regulation uh, that allows for exceptional tuition increases stipulates that the increase can only occur if the new revenue will directly improve the quality of the program. So, of course, we received very robust proposals from the universities to demonstrate how are they going to hire additional faculty, create more work-integrated learning opportunities, expand resources to improve the quality of the program. They can't just take the revenue and throw it into general revenue. Um, Thirdly, I also wanted to ensure and and, uh, make sure that the uh, universities were allocating a portion of the revenue from the tuition increases to create more scholarships and bursaries to help offset uh, part of the increases. Uh, As well, uh, as is required by the regulation, the university can only do this uh, if they have demonstrated that they have engaged in adequate consultation with students. So they they met all of those parameters. Uh, We actually sent the proposals back originally because there was insufficient information about how the increases would in, uh, improve the quality of the program. And in some cases, I wasn't confident with the level of student consultation. So we did ar- originally ask them to go back, do more work. They have done so. Uh, and they're meeting all the requirements that, that are set in the regulation. Now, there's hikes at both U of C and U of A, correct? That is correct, yes. Um, were there any proposals, were there any requests for exceptional hikes that you received where you thought, you know what, no, I'm not going to approve this one, or were they all approved? No, they they were all approved. Uh, As I mentioned, there were some originally we sent back. We asked for more information, wanted to make sure we had a really clear understanding of how many more faculty were they going to hire, how many more co-op opportunities were they going to create, um, how much more was going into scholarships uh, and bursaries. So we wanted to ensure that those parameters uh, were met. And and the other variable that, that I looked at is how are these increases comparing with other universities? As an example, right now, uh, or under the under the current tuition framework at the University of Alberta, an MBA was a, approximately fourteen thousand. Across the U15, that, that's the top fifteen research universities in Canada, the average is twenty nine thousand. So 
uh, I, we did look very carefully to see where they are landing with respect to their comparators. And in most cases, they are landing uh, very close, if not below, the average of their peers. Uh, and so that was also a very important benchmark for us to examine. Yeah, and some of the officials and students associations push back on that assertion. They say that's a false equivalency saying that, you know, it, it got to be on average with the rest of the country because uh, tuition in other provinces is, is offset by more and better student financial aid where we know the UCP government cut UCP uh, cut some of the tuition aid, including the tuition tax credit, and it's harder to access student aid. Uh, that's the claim made by the students. Well, we have actually provided uh, more in student aid. So uh, firstly, again, as part of the proposals, there was a requirement that I set out to ensure that the universities are taking a portion of that new revenue and creating new scholarships and bursaries. On top of that, the provincial government is spending $167 million in this budget in student aid scholarships awards and bursaries that is an increase over the previous year there's 12 million more to support growth in existing scholarships and 15 million that's over three years and 15 million more over three years to create new bursaries for for low-income students so we are adding more into the pot of student assistance and scholarships aids uh, and other bursaries because we, we want to ensure that every Albertan who wants to pursue post-secondary education has the ability to do so. Talking about over the three years and what you're putting into the pot, I've spoken with post-secondary officials from U of C and U of A here on the show you know, over the past several months talking about this who warned about this very possibility because they told us because of the very, very deep cuts that their institutions were seeing from your government, it would be students ultimately who are asked to pay more. I mean, we're talking about the U of A trying to absorb more than $200 million in cuts over 33% of their operating budget over the next three years. I mean, is that what this is? Just coming, you know, they've got to make up this shortfall somewhere and they're seeing massive cuts. No, and as I mentioned, the the under the exceptional tuition uh, regulation and the guidelines, they can't uh, use the revenue from these programs and just throw it into general revenue to continue to pay for their general operations. It must go specifically for those programs to create a, a higher quality um, learning environment for those individual programs. And just coming back to the tuition piece, uh, we have been looking at it very carefully. Of course, as you mentioned, there there have been increases. As we're here today, tuition in Alberta is very, very comparable uh, to the rest of the country. In fact, we are below the national average. Uh, so we're, we're watching those benchmarks very carefully, while at the same time, as I mentioned, continuing to add more into the pot to support students with new scholarships, new bursaries, and other awards. Yeah, but the new scholarships and new bursaries have to be funded by the students, is what you're saying. Well, there, there's... Uh, thank you for that. That's an important clarification. So, the, Well, there's two buckets. So the under the new revenue that's created from the exceptional tuition increases, there are new scholarships and bursaries that are be, uh, being created uh, from that. In addition to that, the government of Alberta has also added, as I mentioned, $12 million to support new scholarships and $50 million. That's coming from the government of Alberta to create new bursaries and new scholarships, in addition to the other scholarships and bursaries that the universities themselves will be creating for these individual programs where they have increased tuition. So when we're talking about U of C and U of A that have received the approval on their exceptional hikes, are there other ones on your desk right now? Could this be happening in Lethbridge or Mount Royal or somewhere University or Red Deer College, something like that? 
No, there, there are no other proposals on my desk okay. uh, at this stage. And, you know, it, it's a very new experience. Um, this, this is the first time this regulation has, has, um, is being used. It, it didn't exist in four. It was, it was put in place by, by the former government to allow institutions to be able to increase tuition above and beyond the cap. Uh, so, uh, we're, we're, we're trying to understand uh, how, how best to apply the regulation. I wanted to ensure that we were following the regulation um, to the T to ensure that there's clear demonstration that the increases will substantially improve the quality of the program, that the institution has engaged in substantial consultation with students. And as I mentioned, we sent the proposals back originally because uh, I, I didn't see some of those pieces demonstrated. Fair enough. Minister, thank you so much for your time today. I appreciate you joining us. Of course, anytime. All the best. Okay, have a good weekend. That is Dimitrios Nicolaitis, who is the province of Alberta's Minister of Advanced Education. There's another situation that, you know, at times has been something the world has been, um, you know, paying close attention to. It's, it's sort of grabbed the attention of the world. Right now, though, it hasn't, for understandable reasons. But maybe we need to pay a little more attention to what's going on in North Korea, as you've probably heard occasionally now and then, um, missile tests happening more and more often have certainly been ramping up, um, and not a lot of people talking about it, but they've done a bunch of them. And what does it mean? Is it something we need to be concerned about? Let's get the very latest on what's happening with North Korea with James Trotche, who is a fellow at the Canadian Global Affairs Institute. He's a lawyer, former career Canadian diplomat, led four diplomatic missions to North Korea, he was also in charge of political, economic, and diplomatic affairs at the Canadian Embassy in South Korea and served as a diplomatic liaison to the U.S. and U.N. forces in South Korea. Uh, James, thanks for joining us again. Always nice to chat. I appreciate your time. Yeah, thanks for having me. So, yeah, I mean, just bring us up to speed. What's been going on with North Korea? Because occasionally you'll hear in the news, hey, uh, North Korea fired another missile. Uh, just tell us exactly what they've been up to there. Well, well exactly. And as you said in your opening comments, I, I, I'm concerned that... Um, just as the world was taken aback by the Russian invasion of Ukraine, the the seeds of future tensions may have been maybe have been planted right now in in Northeast Asia. So there have been eleven or um, uh, uh, nine missile uh, launches, test launches since the beginning of January by uh, North Korea, and they've included ballistic missiles, cruise missiles, uh, a variety of missiles, and the, the most recent one was just last. Saturday on March the 5th, and there was one previously on Sunday, February 27th. And North Korea has now indicated that it plans to resume launching of reconnaissance satellites, which are of concern because these use the same banned ballistic missile technology as ballistic missiles use. So, And as you said, these have received kind of scattered, intermittent yeah. coverage in international media. So just... Talk about the missiles, like you say. These are some of these ballistic missiles that were. Um, what what is the concern? Is it new? Is this something they haven't done before? Is this a new development? Just talk about the missiles themselves for a minute. Well, the missiles are a variety of of, of types. So basically, what the North Koreans do, and this is one of the reasons why they why they have launched these, why they do these missile tests, is in order to enhance and upgrade a weapon systems in order to increase their military capability. Yeah. So in most cases, it's missiles that they have, uh, un, they've, had, they've shown before, some of them they've fired before, but each time they, they do these tests, it upgrades their, their system and their, their preparedness. Um, but the other reason why they, they do this is to get on the U.S. agenda and prod the U.S. into trying to 
uh, and to get a, a substantive engagement on negotiations. And the third reason would be to negotiate from a, a position of strength if and when negotiations resume. So there are a variety of, uh, of missiles. They're not they're not new, yeah. but they're uh, but they're upgraded. Uh, uh, types of what they've used before. Gotcha. Now, the timing, as you say, there's a bunch of different reasons why they do this. There's also reasons to why they do it when they do it. So it's not surprising to you that we're seeing this activity right now, right? Right. So we had expected that there would, once the January ones were done, and they did the the 7 in January, um, we expected there would be a hiatus until the Olympics were over in China, uh, as there was. Uh, And then they started after the after the Olympics, and we expect that we expected that they would occur after the Olympics and around the time of the South Korean election. And the South Korean election, presidential election, was on Wednesday. And the uh, last test that the North Koreans did was the previous uh, Sunday. And uh, we also think that they will continue to do these tests uh, between now and. The, China, the Communist Party of China's Party Congress in October, because uh, they're very sensitive to Chinese sensitivities, and so they, would, they wouldn't do it during right. the Party Congress, but they will do it up to that time. Now, obviously, I mean, what's going on in Ukraine and Russia affects everything that's going on around the planet. I'm sure it plays into North Korea. They, I mean, I don't want to say that they're the same position as Russia, but there's a lot of striking similarities between the way the international community is treating Russia and has long treated North Korea, uh, for good reason. I'm not saying we shouldn't, um, but I'm sure they're watching closely to see how this plays out too, right? Yeah, so I, I should just clarify, though, that this isn't uh, a situation of uh, there's no of, of North Korea planning a, a strike against uh, South Korea. Right. There's no sort of a credible assessment of doing that. This isn't a, a Russia surrounding the Ukraine situation. But what the, what the North Koreans will be watching will be to see how far Putin can push the envelope on, uh, in regards to Ukraine and what the reaction of the West uh, and of the international community is to that uh, aggression by the Russians in the Ukraine. So the North Koreans will be paying uh, close attention uh, to that. I, I, I might just add about the election on Wednesday of the, in, in South Korea, the new uh, president-elect, who's a conservative candidate, and the, um, he, the, the, the Mr. Yoon. And Mr. Yoon is an experienced and respected public prosecutor in South Korea, but he's had no elected office, and he has no foreign policy experience. And although the election was focused mainly on domestic issues, Mr. Yoon did speak in January in favor of a preemptive military strike on North Korea. This caused a lot of concerns in South Korea and would have rung alarm bells in North Korea. So I expect that the new president will be, or the North Koreans will try to test the new president early on. And uh, given that the new president will take a harder line towards North Korea, uh, that North Korea will reply in kind and, and ramp up its its missile test. So this can be dangerous as the rhetoric on each side eggs on the other side, and words can turn to deeds. So this is why uh, there's also there's more scope for misunderstanding and misreading. So it would be important in this context for the USA and for the international community, but particularly the USA, to encourage the new South Korean president to exercise restraint 
in language and actions. What ultimately, and it's a good question. It's from one of our listeners. What is North Korea negotiating with the U.S.? Like literally, what is the goal of North Korea? Is it to get the economic sanctions removed? Is it to sort of uh, no longer be a pariah state? I mean, what is the end goal of North Korea? The number one priority of North Korea is the security of the state, and for, for as far as they're concerned, the the retention of nuclear weapons is essential for the security of the state. The United States, on the other hand, says that their main and number one priority is denuclearization. So you have these two opposite um, uh, opposite uh, goals in mind. So uh, if you're looking for an off ramp, um, you will ha- one would have to look at something that tries to find some uh, common ground. And one of the common grounds, for instance, would be um, uh, relief of uh, sanctions or easing of sanctions. On the one hand, in return for some uh, uh, more continued moratorium on long-range uh, missile testing and on uh, nuclear future nuclear tests, also some uh, reduction in the uh, uh, North Korean nuclear capacity. Right. But at the end of the game, North Korea is a de facto nuclear state, and that's it's a fact of life. And so <clears throat> the international community will have to deal with this. I, I might also say that... Um, in testimony before Congress in 2017, the U.S. military said that uh, it would be impossible to destroy North Korean nuclear facilities except with a ground war. You could not do it by air. And it would require ground troops by uh, American troops and so on, which is not really feasible. Um, last one. When we see what's going on with uh, the situation in Russia and it's going to the international community and there's votes and things like that, North Korea obviously aligning themselves with Russia, right? Uh, sort of, you it, know, we're, we're, we're the party of pariah states here? Exactly. So in the vote, which was overwhelmingly against uh, Russia yeah. for invasion of Ukraine, there were only four states that supported uh, Russia, and one of them was North Korea. Basically, uh, you know, I, I, I imagine um, making a trade for future considerations and future <laughs> Russian support. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, never a dull moment, right? And uh, yes. I appreciate you coming on, and we'll chat again. I, I imagine this, as, as this Russia situation continues, North Korea will try and exploit it to their, to their best advantage, right? I mean, there will be more developments here. Yeah, and they'll be, as I say, they'll be watching closely to see Uh, what the pushback from the West is. Yeah, and learn a lot from it. Uh, James, thanks so much for your time. We'll chat again soon. Okay, thanks for having me. You bet. Thank you. That is uh, James Trottier, who has uh, just an absolute wealth of experience in that part of the world. As I said, you know, he was a career Canadian diplomat. He led four diplomatic missions to North Korea. He was in charge of political and economic and diplomatic affairs at the Canadian Embassy in South Korea, served as diplomatic liaison to U.S. and U.N. forces in South Korea, and uh, sort of saying, hey, don't overlook the fact that North Korea is continuing to do what North Korea does. Does it ever amount to anything? But uh, I guess that doesn't mean it's not something we need to pay attention to. We're going to have a discussion right now, though, about, um, kind of about the Russia-Ukraine situation, but a different aspect to it, and one that uh, I think is really important and really kind of interesting. You know, for a couple of decades now, the International Space Station has been home to astronauts well, from all over the planet, including Russia, right? Floating high above the Earth and high above all the drama down on Earth in many ways, but not anymore. The current situation in Ukraine and Russia, the invasion of it, uh, it's, it's been felt in space, believe it or not. And there are fears for how the future of space exploration may, in fact, be changed 
because of what's going on right now. So to get into that, we're going to chat with David Kendall, who is a fellow at the Vancouver-based Outer Space Institute and former Director General of Space Science and Technology at the Canadian Space Agency. David, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate you joining us today. I'm, uh, thank you, Shay. I'm uh, glad to be with you. This really has gotten quite nasty, hasn't it? I mean, uh, I know that the, the head of Russia's space agency has been very public in lashing out about what's going on. I mean, this has actually become a very serious situation, correct? It is, indeed. Uh, you're quite right. The head of the uh, Russian space agency has uh, lashed out uh, with some uh, uh, difficult uh, tweets, let's say, um, that uh, threatens the future of the space station. Uh, most most observers, though, really do not believe that uh, he will follow through with those those threat, threats. But given the unpredictability of the situation right now, uh, really anything can happen. Um, yeah, hopefully he doesn't follow through. But what is he threatening? And I mean, it's big, right? It's basically keeping the space station in orbit. Yeah, that's correct. Uh, the space station is like uh, some great mansion that somebody has built uh, with a whole bunch of uh, different family members. Um, and it really only works if the family members get along, uh, because each of the family members have a uh, specific uh, part of that, uh, of that house, and they also have a specific function to provide. Um, so, for example, the power is provided by the United States, uh, but the the International Space Station does need to be boosted from its uh, altitude every now and then because uh, the atmospheric drag just drags it down. And so every three months or so, it needs a, a boost. And the only way that we have right now to boost that is through the Russians. They uh, they connect uh, one of their, their vehicles called a Progress, um, uh, and it uh, has fuel on board uh, and gives it a boost so it keeps it a optimum altitude, one might say. And without that, there is no other way right now to boost the, um, uh, to boost the station. Uh, so the other, other partners, if, if uh, Russia pulls out, would have to scramble. And that is really the, the major issue that we have right now if uh, the Russians do decide that they uh, do not want to be part of this anymore. So is the space station itself threatened then, or could that scramble be successful? If Russia decides, okay, we're not doing it anymore, um, is that the end of the space station? Or as you say, you know, the, the rest of the countries would have to scramble. Is it possible to, to maintain it in some other way? Uh, yes, because you can imagine that after that threat, uh, that, that our friends in the United States are looking now at every option they sure. possibly could to... Uh, Make sure to ensure that one of their um, one of their vehicles that docks with the station, and there are several, uh, could be reconfigured uh, to uh, to do that boost. Um, <clears throat> there's been nothing released publicly about that yet, uh, but uh, uh, clearly there's going to be have to be some uh, a lot of uh, work uh, to be done, um, probably with a. <laughs> a very dedicated Tiger team that's looking at, at that issue right now. What about, you know, space partnerships in general? It's long been sort of an international effort, as I said, in many ways, on a different, many different fronts. Um, how big of an issue could it become if Russia decided they weren't part of this anymore? Well, I think it would be another nail in the coffin, one might say, to, uh, to continued uh, Russian collaboration. Um, Right now, my own personal view is that the uh, partnership is not particularly threatened. Russia had very little else going on in space right now. 
Um, this is the one thing which they really, they have these uh, vehicles, they have uh, the, the Progress, which is a, a very capable vehicle to um, re, 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 uh, refurbish or replenish uh, the supplies on uh, on the space station uh, they have their soyuz vehicle which is the one which the, which which takes the uh, astronauts and cosmonauts back and forwards and if they decided to pull out those would just be sitting there doing nothing and really russia has very little else going on in space so i i believe personally that their threat is just uh, saber rattling and and will they will not follow through however as i said before the uncertainty and the unpredictability with this this conflict right now, um, we really just don't know what's going to happen. Bigger than the space station, just in terms of international relations, I mean, we've had guests on the air recently talking about how we need to have some sort of international, not even a body, but just some understanding and some recognition of, okay, space is getting really crowded. We're all up there doing different things. We need to work together to sort of make sure everything works successfully. With what we're doing to Russia and basically making them a pariah down here on Earth and alienating them from the international community, are you worried that, you know, their relationship with the world may in some way affect what happens in space? I uh, I, I really am concerned about that. Uh, I think you hit something uh, very important, Shay. Um, there are right now a number of discussions at at an international level going on to try and um, develop um, ideas uh, and further than ideas, actually treaties, uh, if we can, uh, how we can use space more um, sustainably, more more safely, uh, more uh, more reliably. Uh, Because right now it's a bit of a uh, wild west out there to the truth um there is uh, there's a lot lot of stuff going up there a lot of stuff going on um and it's not a particularly good situation because the rules that we're using the so-called outer space treaty are now um 60 years old over 60 years old and um they're, they're being surpassed i mean the, the, what we're doing in space is was never ever thought of 60 years ago so we need new treaties we need new uh, agreements between the yeah. partners uh, space partners and uh, russia has always been uh, difficult in that in that area they've uh, they've always been a little bit of a i would say um uh, troublemakers in trying to get these agreements um but they they are sitting at the table right now um, and they are talking and with the partners, with other countries, um, and we're talking through this through the uh, United Nations Committee called the Committee on the Peaceful Uses of Outer Space, which meets every year. Um, and there are specific uh, working groups set up to look at this. Um, and um, I am really concerned because I, I know this group very well. I was chair of this committee for a couple of years recently. Um, the Russians, I'm, I am really concerned that they that their anger uh, and their is such that they will uh simply just pull out of these discussions and unfortunately what we need here is we need consensus these yeah. bodies work through consensus and there's one one state like russia who decides that they um, they're going to take their football and, and just go somewhere else is not a uh, is it's not a good situation um i'm just wondering in terms of like, we know the head of the Russian Space Agency is saying all kinds of things publicly. Um, is this, how intertwined do you think, I mean, is this something that could be, and maybe you can't even answer this and it's unfair to ask, but in terms of leverage that Russia might have, I mean, can they use something like this as part of their negotiations? Or are space agencies seen as something, because they're so international and they're so different from everything else, are they separate 
from a lot of the politics and the drama that takes place in between governments? Well, in, in the case of the International Space Station, they have to be, because we're talking about uh, lives of, uh, of astronauts and cosmonauts on board this, uh, this station. Um, and any threat uh, to the continued uh, support to the International Space Station could certainly endanger the seven, seven people who are currently up there. It changes from, uh, from almost week to week as to how many people are up on the station. Um, and so, uh, and this would be huge news, of course, if something happened to the to the to the to the station. There is also a line of thought, Shay, that perhaps you know it, the space station has continued now for twenty over twenty one years um, of harmonious, one might say, um, collaboration. Um, and even during the other crises we've had, the uh, Crimea crisis, etc., the ISS was really not affected. Yeah. Um, and could this be used uh, to try and ta- tamper down the rhetoric which is going on right now? Um, so certainly between uh, the the partners, uh, and certainly between the U.S. and, and Russia. Uh, it's a possibility, um, although, as we know, the situation in Ukraine is dire, uh, tragic, um, uh, terrible. Um, and this is a really, we're in new, a new territory, I think, because of the scope of this uh, current invasion. You mentioned the, um, the astronauts who are on the space station right now, seven of them. Two of them are Russian. <laughs> You've got four Americans, and I think, yep. I think a German is the other one. Um, do we have any idea what's going on? Like you say, safety of these people is obviously the first and foremost priority. It doesn't matter what country you're from, but they're not picking sides. I mean, there's, there's none of that happening up there, do we know of? No, absolutely not. I mean, the politics uh, are certainly the last thing they're going to be yeah. speaking about uh, with each other. They have very busy lives. Um, their lives are each day is scripted to almost the minute. Um, and they have so many things they need to be doing, uh, the, the research up there, just keeping the station um, active, uh, repairing things. Um, uh, really... Uh, that you, you can be assured that uh, this this uh, issue that we we are all discussing minute by minute on the ground is not something which is going to be raised in at, at really any level uh, uh, between the, the colleagues who are working uh, up on the space station. Well, that that would be good to hear, uh, Dave. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. I really appreciate your time and your insight. Good. Well, thank you, Shay. Uh, I was pleased to be with you. Thank you, sir. That is David Kendall, who is a fellow at the Vancouver-based Outer Space Institute and the former Director General of Space Science and Technology at the Canadian Space Agency. And like he says, there is some concern right now among the space community. A very public dispute is underway as we speak. Um, The former head, or the current head, rather, of Russia's space agency, his name is Dmitry Rogozin. Um, and he uh, recently has been all over Twitter saying all kinds of things, expressing his support for what's going on with Russia invading the Ukraine, threatening to stop Russian cooperation with the International Space Station mission. Um, last week, he tweeted out a video uh, of some of his staff taping over the Japanese and the American flags that were on the exterior of a Soyuz rocket. And then he said, the launchers have decided that without the flags of some countries, our rocket would look more beautiful. And then it got into a back and forth with Scott Kelly, who used to be an American astronaut, going back and forth. And um, it ended with Rogazin saying, get off, you moron. 
Otherwise, the death of the ISS, the International Space Station, will be on your conscience. So, I mean, there's a lot of rhetoric going on out there, how realistic it is. And as you heard from David, they're not 100% sure, but definitely something that people are concerned about and uh, keeping an eye on. Thanks for listening today. To hear any of our other interviews, you can find them wherever you find your favorite podcasts. If you like what you hear, don't forget to rate and review us.